Well, we are glad that you are here. We are a church that doesn't apologize for taking a look at what's going on around us through the pages of God's eternal word. I mean, his word is a light to our path, right? How can we walk the path that we're walking today without God's light? Every generation has to deal with their, the evils of their day, and we are dealing with ours. And the only way that I know to deal with these is to walk by the light of God. Now, I started a sermon two weeks ago that I wanted to at least do part two of today. The last part went a little different way than what I'd originally planned, so I went that way because it seemed to be what we needed to talk about, and I preached a message what standing up to a tyrant looks like. But it's all a part of this message. Why is it that this church and Paul and I preach and teach what we do? Why is it that we're involved in all of the things that we're involved in? A lot of people ask us, "Why, why, why, guys, do you do this? I mean, why do you spend so much time shining a biblical light on our present circumstances? Don't you realize that the kingdom of God is bigger than what we're going through right now? Well, of course we do. Why are guys like Paul and myself willing to take the chance of being misunderstood, which we often are, or being criticized and rejected, which we have been and still are? People say, well, you guys preach the gospel over, excuse me, you guys preach politics over the gospel. You must think that politics is more important. You must think that the answers are in government. Well, no. The answers are not in government. But government is one of the three institutions God created so we can have a civil society. And God has a lot to say about proper governance. You take the salt and light out of any area of life, and what do you have? Darkness and decay. It's really, really simple. Why did Paul and I both run for office while pastoring churches that kept us busy enough and then traveling around speaking at conferences all around the country? Why would we do that? Why would I, after my church that I'd pastored for 23 years over in Yukon and had multiple times actually approved publicly and voted for me to be involved in all these things, then turn around and run me out? Why would I put myself... In that kind of position. Why would Paul do the same? Well, it has to do with having a proper perspective on history and how it affects our present and our future, even our eternity. The way that we deal with what's going on right now is to a great degree based upon what has happened in the past. And what we will be doing tomorrow and next month and next year is based to a great degree on what we're going to do now. And one day we're going to stand before God and for all eternity either enjoy the rewards of our faithfulness. Now remember, eternal life is not a reward. You don't earn that. That's a gift of God. But as believers, we're called to be faithful and earn rewards. Some Christians will have few to none. Others will have many. Why in the world would we want to ignore our present circumstances when that's where God put us? We're born for this day, and this is where we make a difference. So today I want to talk to you about mile markers and memorials. Because I think it is so important that we understand why we do what we do here. 
Why is Fairview so different? Why do we take such a strong stand on issues? Why are we not afraid to talk about political issues? Why are we not afraid to talk about who we think is worthy of your vote? Why do we not run away from these things like practically every other church and every other preacher that I know of? Well, it's all based upon whether or not we're going to make a difference in this world. And what God is doing in our lives is so important that he wants us to have these markers and these memorials. Now, that's not new. If you go way, all the way back to the Old Testament, God told the children of Israel, he said, Now, look, I know when you finally get into the land that I've promised you and you're living in nice homes and you have orchards and vineyards and you're kind of kicking back and you're on easy street, you're going to forget. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12, there's a verse of Scripture that God instructed Moses to communicate to the Israelites that says this, God speaking, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now the reason why he said, beware lest you forget, is because it is human nature to forget. It's real easy for me to complain to God about what he isn't doing for me right now. It's really easy for me to ask God, God, why didn't you do that? And why do you do this? And where are you, Lord? It's much more difficult to stop and say, well, what has he done in the past? Not just what has he done in Israel. Not just what has he done in our distant past. What has he done in my past? What has God done in your past? You see, by focusing on those things, we renew our confidence in what God is doing now and what He will do tomorrow. But if we forget those things, then we forget God's capability. So let's talk about it for just a moment, these memorials that God gave Israel. Just a a few examples. You remember the night they leave Egypt. God calls it the Passover. They paint the, the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And then God said... In Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, now you need to do this from now on as a memorial. Every generation needs to be reminded of how I led you out of bondage. Ultimately, that was a picture, it was real, but it was a picture of what Christ would finally purchase for all of us. As he led us out of the bondage of sin and, and condemnation into liberty, into Victory and dominion in Christ. So that was a picture, real as it was, but it was a memorial to the children of Israel. But those are not the only memorials. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving God's instructions for the people, the Bible says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, at the foot of Sinai. And he also built 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you look on your map, you'll typically find Mount Sinai listed, but that's not Mount Sinai. In fact, I believe the true Mount Sinai has been found. The next few photographs are from some who have been there in Saudi Arabia, as the Bible says it is. The photos are a little bit grainy because they were taken quickly because these people weren't supposed to be there. This is a mountain in Saudi Arabia that has the top of it scorched. That's not a shadow. It's scorched. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says happened at Sinai. 
Not only that, but the Bible tells us that there was a huge altar built at the foot of the mountain that the children of Israel perverted and turned it into worship of the golden calf, like the calves that they had worshipped in Egypt. That, I believe, is actually that altar. In fact, if you look on some of the stones scratched and inscribed into the side of those stones are calves the way that they were drawn in ancient Egypt. And the Israelites, of course, brought a thorough working of that understanding because they had built many of those temples. What about the 12 pillars? Well, scattered around the bottom of this mountain with the burnt top, you find all of these. These are sections of columns. They've been scattered all around over the centuries. Ron Wyatt, who was one of the guys that investigated this, is sitting on one of those sections to give you kind of a scale of the size of these. There's enough of those scattered about by others that I know who've actually been there. They tell me there are plenty of those to make these 12 pillars that the Bible is talking about. Now, why is that important? Because it was supposed to be a mile marker for the Israelites, a memorial. What about the Ark of the Covenant? We all know that it symbolized God's presence among the Israelites. That's why God said, don't touch it. Sinful man cannot approach holy God. But it was also a visual reminder of who God was and His care. Remember, they put inside of it the tablets of the law. A reminder to keep God's law. They put within it a jar containing the manna that God is the bread of life. They put inside of it Aaron's staff, that rod that budded, designating Aaron's lineage as the lineage of the preachers. All of this was a memorial for the Israelites. And then they finally get to the Jordan River. Moses is now with the Lord. Joshua is leading in Moses' position. They're about to cross the Jordan, and God tells them to wait. The Jordan is at flood stage, and he says, Now look, I'm going to split the water there just like I did over at the Red Sea, so don't fret. But then he instructs Joshua, and you find it in Joshua chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 and verses 6 and 7, to take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe. Command them, saying, take for yourselves 12 stones from here. Out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm, you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Why do that? Those things are heavy. Well, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. By the way, remember again at flood stage, this is a repeat of the Red Sea splitting. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. Now, unfortunately, they forgot. They forgot. Why did God have them to do this? They're just simple stones. Probably large stones, but small enough that one man could carry one stone. But why? Because he wanted them to remember. And so the reason that we do all of this and why sometimes we almost seem to be teaching history lessons like I'm going to do today is simply because... This is God's way of keeping us into, in touch with the great things that He has done on our behalf. And when we forget those things, we tend to wander just like the Israelites did. So why? Well, first of all, to have a proper perspective on history. 
I know you've heard this by now, but when you hear the word history, you know what you ought to hear? His story. That's what you ought to hear. Human history alone is just human history. So what? But if it's the story of how God is weaving his redemptive plan and his kingdom through mankind, whoa, it becomes very different. It becomes his story. Is that the way you look at your history? Do you have a history? Of course you do. Do you have a proper perspective on what God is doing? Paul has just gone through a tremendous storm. That, that's why that song that we sing about Healer, he, he walks with me through the fire and, and he, he calms the raging seas. He has a history now, uh, another chapter in that story that he can communicate to his children, to his grandchildren, to his congregation, to those who know him. It's a proper perspective. But then it's also a personal perspective. It's you. It's not just corporately people. And it's not just Paul who has a story. You have a story. And history must become personal. It's not normally. Normally history is just some far off dusty thing that we don't know. This is why Joshua said, "You get, get those stones. This is why God set up all these other memorials, and we've just touched the surface. But notice, it's personal. It needs to become personalized. There's a third reason. It's what I call a posterity perspective. Joshua said, that way when your children come along and say, well, what are these? Gives you a great teaching moment. You can say, look, God worked an incredible miracle for us, and let me tell you about it. And you know what that will infuse to that next generation? Faith. Faith. It's what we call passing the baton of faith, which we've done a lousy job of in America for the last 50 to 75 years. Ken Ham has written a book entitled Already Gone, and he pinpoints through scientific research how and when we dropped the ball. And now, succeeding generations are jettisoning the faith of their families. And these kids grew up in Christian homes, went to Christian schools, went to Sunday school, and the whole deal. And now they're saying, no thanks. What happened? Somewhere along the way, a generation did not pass its faith to the next generation. And so like a relay race, when that baton was fumbled and dropped, the race was over. It was lost. And so God told Joshua, this is a posterity reason, a posterity perspective on history. And then one last, it's what I call a persuasive perspective. Because when you tell your story, you can use that story to point others to Him. People who wonder, well, is God a personal God or just off in the heavens somewhere? You can say, oh no, He's very personal. Let me tell you my story. And all of a sudden... You can actually win people to Christ with your story. Now, my story, your story is not more important than his story, but it is a piece of his story. And this is why history is so very, very important. This is why Mark Stein, a number of years ago, most of you probably know who he is, a conservative radio and talk show host, said years ago, and and still repeats it basically, when a society loses its memory, it descends inevitably into dementia. We've all watched people suffer with dementia. It's one of the most horrible things to have to witness, to watch someone just actually fade away. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they are. They don't know why they are. Well, when a culture 
erases its history. We're operating by social dementia. And I would submit to you that that's what has happened in America today. The American church believes it's just Bible only. Well, of course, God's word is paramount. But how does it apply to me? Well, you have to take God's word, eternal truths, and then apply them to present circumstances and make application which makes disciples, which is something we don't do anymore. And so because of that, we have lost our story. So in the next few moments, I'm going to tell you a few stories. Some of them you will know. Some of them you may not know all the details to. There are so many stories. I will have to preach another message on this. In fact, it will probably take two more. But today will be a good starter. Now, I can't go into all of the stories through our history because there's too many. So I'm just going to focus in on about 1775 to 1776. Now, first of all, I want to make it clear that I do not worship America. Some American Christians are guilty of a either mild or moderate or sometimes even worse than that form of idolatry. It's almost like we worship America. We worship the Constitution. We claim the Constitution's inspired, but we don't differentiate between divine inspiration and just people kind of being moved by God. There's a big difference. And we almost worship Americanism. Well, I'm not doing that. In fact, we're no better than any group of people. In fact, I think we're showing ourselves that we may be worse than some groups of people. But we do have a history that we need to know. And because we don't know it, I believe explains why we're acting the way we're acting now. So let's begin with what I call the framers. Here's the signers of the Declaration of Independence. This painting hangs in the Capitol Rotunda. These men were flawed. They weren't perfect. Not all of them were born-again Christians. Some of them were aware of the Bible. They they respected Judeo-Christian sentimentality. Some of them were born again. But they were all highly driven by the church of that day and its effectiveness. Now, the first miracle that I want to talk about is how so many brilliant individuals were born at the same time ended up in the same place to do what they were able to do. I believe unequaled in human history. So for instance, we think about these guys and we think that they're bigger than life. They aren't. They had flaws, problems. But one of the things that I think it's important to remember is that some of these guys were really young. For instance, Thomas Jefferson, who writes the Declaration of Independence, is 33 years old in 1776. John Hancock, who is the president of the Continental Congress, is 40 in 1776. John Adams is a whopping 41 in 1776. George Washington, who becomes the father of our country, 44. The oldest man there, Benjamin Franklin, 71. For all practical purposes, these were young men. Have you known anyone who at the age of 33 could write something like the Declaration of Independence? You know anybody? I've never known anyone. How in the world could these people have all been born around the same time, in the same place, and be brought together to do something unequaled and unparalleled in all of human history? What do historians have to say about it? Well, listen to these quotes. Political talent bloomed as if touched by some tropical sun. 
referring to these guys. Here's another historian. We may be amazed as well as grateful at the spectacle of the intellectual and moral caliber of the men who took a hand in shaping the American political tradition. Here is William Pitt. He was a Brit. He was British. He was the most powerful politician in Great Britain in 1776. He said this to the House of Lords. He said, I quote, No nation or body of men can stand in preference to the General Congress at Philadelphia. You know who he's referring to? Continental Congress. This is the arch enemy of the Continental Congress. And he says, I don't know of a body in the world that can approach this. How, how did this happen? It's a miracle. Now this is a rather long quote. It comes out of a book written by Larkin Spivey about the miracles of the revolution. I want you to go to the middle of this. I want us to start um, right here. Notice what he says about the framers. Somehow this group of men was able to integrate classical learning and modern concepts of philosophy with their own spiritual convictions and common sense. These were all religious men, now maybe not all born again, but religious men, and conscious of the role of religion in supporting the moral fiber of the nation. So that would lead people like John Adams to say our constitution was written only for a moral and religious people. God used this amazing talent to somehow blend the cross currents of the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment into a new civil and religious order unseen before in history. What a blessing to us that the Declaration of Independence, our birth certificate, was written by this collection of incredible individuals. Maybe never to occur on earth again just like that. So let's jump forward to July the 9th, 1775. We're now in the French and Indian War. Not too far from Pitts, modern Pittsburgh was the Fort, Fort Duquesne. We Americans were allied, if you can believe it or not, with the British. We're fighting the French. In just a few years, that's going to flip. The Indian tribes had allied with the French, and so we're fighting the French and Indian War. There's a young commander who's only 23. He's attached to the British commander, General William Braddock. This young commander has a contingency of colonial soldiers with him, but he's really not in command. He's just kind of there. They're a part of the force, but he's not really in charge. His name is George Washington. As they are about seven or eight miles out from Fort Duquesne, the French and the Indians ambushed them and began a battle, guerrilla warfare style, which the British were completely unprepared to fight. It turns into a total melee, so much so that the British commander, General William Braddock, is mortally wounded in the fight. To show you how vicious the fighting was, out of 86 commanders, 63 were either wounded or killed. Eventually, the command structure collapsed, and there was no one to take charge, and they were being massacred. Washington, 23 knew that if he didn't organize a speedy and effective retreat, not a person would survive. So he takes charge and begins to organize a retreat. Eventually, he is the only commander left on horseback. Well, he was successful 
And he was able to salvage what was left of the army. And even though it had been a massacre, many of them lived to fight another day. And thank God that George Washington did. But he was kind of, because he was kind of the indispensable man. Now, of course, God can use other people. But just imagine where our history would have gone without an individual like George Washington. I'm convinced that he'd been killed. There probably would not have been a war of independence. We would have not had the stories that I'm going to relate to you later. Well, of course, the colonies are just terrorized by this news when it finally begins to spread. And they believe everyone's been killed. In fact, the, the rumor's out that George Washington has been killed. Most people wouldn't know Washington, but his family did. And so Washington sits down a little over a week after the battle on July the 18th, 1755, and writes a letter to his brother John Augustus Washington. He says, As I have heard since my arrival at this place, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this earthly opportunity of contradicting the first, there's a T missing, and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, capital P, many times he would say providence of the Almighty, he meant God, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. Now most of you know this part of the story. He said, I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot from under me yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. General Braddock had to be buried in the, in the road, and they covered up his grave so the enemy would not desecrate his body and use it for some kind of war propaganda. At 23, now to show you how God's hand remained on people like George Washington, jump forward to September the 7th, 1777. Now we're in the War of Independence, and we're fighting the British. And a British captain by the name of Patrick Ferguson and three of his command staff were out riding when they saw in the distance two colonial commanders. They knew they were commanders. They were high ranking. It was distant enough that they couldn't recognize who they were and the colonial commanders didn't know they were there. And so Ferguson said they were well within my flintlock range and I lowered my flintlock and prepared to shoot one of those commanders, the apparent highest commander off of his horse, and then I had second thoughts. And to quote him, he said, it was not pleasant to fire at the back of an unoffending individual who was acquitting himself coolly of his duty, and so I let him alone. He was amazed to find later on that that man he didn't shoot was none other than George Washington. Just imagine what would have happened in the War of Independence in 1777, when things are still not going very well, if George Washington had been killed by that British captain. A miracle. Let's jump back to June the 17th, 1775. We know it as the Battle of Bunker Hill. This musket that I have with me, some of you have seen, some of you have not. Some of you have held it, others have not. This musket was carried by Lieutenant William Perkins at the Battle of Bunker Hill. It's a 78 caliber. If you haven't held this before you leave here today, you need to hold it. You know that the British had occupied Boston. The colonists went outside the city at a place called Breed's Hill, connected to Bunker Hill. And they just taunted the British to come and get them. And so, eventually, the British took the bait. And on June the 17th, 1775, the British attacked the American forces entrenched. 
Now, the Americans held their own quite well because the British just kept marching up the hill. And if you ever go over there on a tour with me, I'll show you the hill and we'll be right there in formation while the Americans just mowed them down. In fact, the Americans were so effective that the British suffered over a thousand casualties, the Americans less than half of that, which equated to 40% of the British attacking force was taken out. One of the British commanders who was bragging about their great victory at Bunker Hill only because the Americans ran out of ammo and had to leave the field. But he was bragging about this great victory and one of the other generals said, Well, General, with such a great victory as that, if we have just a few more of those, we'll lose the war. (laughs) This was a great debacle. In fact, there was a river that flowed to the left flank of the Americans called the Mystic River that if the British had only reconnoitered it and had sailed up that river, they could have opened up their artillery and blown the Americans off of Breeds and Bunker Hills and the War of Independence would have been over. There wasn't even an actual American military at this battle. They were all militiamen. William Perkins, his name is etched on the side of this. He was a militia lieutenant. He wasn't even regular military. But the British never checked out Mystic River. And so because they had not reconnoitered it, they didn't take advantage of it. Another problem. When the British got there, they had carried the wrong cannonballs over. They had brought 12-pound cannonballs when they need 6-pound. Now, you can't shove a 12-pound cannonball into a 6-pound cannon. That effectively nullified all of their artillery. Now, how do you think that kind of stuff happens? Well, if it was an isolated incident, maybe you'd say, oh, well, you know, that always happens every now and then. No. No, you'll see over and over and over, these are not isolated incidences. So let's move now forward. The Americans have retreated from Bunker Hill. Washington now is in command. Bunker Hill was seen by the colonies as a devastating defeat because they knew ultimately that they were running from the British. Washington now is... Looking at Boston, if he can't free Boston, probably independence is up again. It's always either do or die. And so what do we do? Well, they can't run the British out. They're too strong. So a 25-year-old general by the name of General Henry Knox meets with General Washington and says, I think there's a plan. Fort Ticonderoga has fallen to the Americans. It's 300 miles away. I can go there and get the cannons and the mortars and bring them back here. The problem was, it's 300 miles through the wilderness. We're way up into the deep part of a terrible, brutal winter, much like that Siberian front that swept through here a few months ago. How in the world are you going to do this? Well, he sets off to get cannons like these. These are huge. He arrives in Fort Ticonderoga on December the 5th, 1775. He selects 43 cannons like these and another 16 mortars. They load them up on sleds after they've pulled them apart. And they begin to move across the frozen wilderness 300 miles. They're crossing frozen creeks, frozen rivers, frozen lakes, up over hills, places where there are little or no roads, using oxen. Dragging sleds, get this, moving 60 tons of equipment 300 miles in brutal, freezing weather. How could anybody pull off something like that? A 25-year-old man? But in a little less than two months, 
he's able to get those cannons to Boston by late January of 1776. Now here's what happens next. One of the commanders in Boston is a British general by the name of Francis Smith. You may remember his name because he was the commander of the troops that attacked Lexington and conquered the Americans there. He's one of the commanders. Well, on March the 4th, 1776, George Washington said it's time to use these cannons and they put them up on Dorchester Heights, which overlooks Boston. In one night, starting at 7 p.m., they are able to hide their actions. They wrapped cloth around wagon wheels and cannon wheels and all so that they wouldn't be heard by the British. And they begin to move all of these cannons up on this hill so by the next day they can be staring down on the British. General Smith, at 10 p.m., receives word that the Americans are working up on Dorchester Heights and they're moving cannons up there. You know what he did? Nothing. He completely ignored the warning. Now that's going to come back in just a moment, so hang on to that. Well, by the next day, just overnight, from 7 p.m. till sunrise, the British wake up to see American cannons glaring down on them and there's not a lot that they can do. The British think, well, we only have one shot, and here's what we're going to do. We're just going to attack. General Howe, the actual commander of the British, said, those rebels have done more in one night than my own army would have done in months. And so the only thing they can do, or they're going to lose Boston, is they're going to mount an attack, and they're going to ship these soldiers over on boats, and they're going to attack Dorchester Heights, except that a weird storm hit. In fact, a local by the name of Timothy Newell called it a hurry, H-U-R-R-Y, came. He called it a hurry, came. And the, the winds were so strong and the storm so fierce that it began to capsize the boats of the British and they had to call off the attack. And General Howe had to ask General Washington that if you won't fire on us, we'll evacuate Boston without burning it. And that's how Boston was freed from the clutches of the British. Had they not been able to do that, the war would have been over. Coincidence? Sure. All right, let's jump forward to August the 27th, 1776. Now, even though the British have evacuated Boston, you've got to remember the war is touch and go. See, it's hard for us to realize, but the Americans are still losing. And they're losing big. Here's a perfect example. On Long Island, New York, the British have concentrated all of their forces. Washington knew that this attack was coming. I want you to listen to what he said to his troops just a few days before this attack of the British. The fate of unborn millions. Do you know who those people are? Us. Will now depend under God on the courage and conduct of this army. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to great and noble actions. Well, as I said on August 27th, the British attack, they drive the Americans off of the battlefield. It's, it's, it's a total uh, defeat. They rout the Americans. The Americans are all congregated on a hill called Brooklyn Heights. Of course, today it's heavily populated, but in those days it was not. And they're backed up to the East River right here. There's nowhere to go. The British have them surrounded. 
All General Howe had to do is launch one more attack. George Washington is either a prisoner of war or dead. The American army is finished and the War of Independence is over on August the 27th, 1776. Unexplainedly, Howe halted his troops and did nothing for the rest of the day. Amazingly, the very next day, the 28th, another horrible storm hit. And it rained like crazy and the wind blew and the American soldiers were wet like rats, freezing and shivering over here on Brooklyn Heights, but the British couldn't attack. They couldn't launch ships. They couldn't do anything. And so they sat there all day long on the 28th, all day long on the 29th. Finally, by late afternoon on the 29th, Washington called his staff together and said, Guys, we have one chance. We must evacuate. The guys looked at him and said, Are you nuts? Where are we going to go? The British have us surrounded. He said, We're going to cross the river. That's impossible. This storm will not allow it. He said, We must. And so they had been gathering up boats, and they began to load the soldiers up. Unfortunately, the water was so rough that the commander in charge of the evacuation penned a letter, a note, to General Washington and said, we must call this off. Our boats are being swamped. We cannot do it. The man who carried the note couldn't find General Washington, and he never saw the note. So the evacuation went on. About 11 o'clock that night, They said something happened. It's like you'd turned off a faucet. It's like you'd flipped a switch. The rain stopped. The wind stopped. The commander said, we can load these boats to the very brim. And they did within just a couple of inches of the tops of those boats. And they were able all night long to move those troops across. Now the crazy thing is, there was a Tory by the name of Mrs. John Rapelli who saw what was going on, that the Americans are crossing the East River. So she sent her slave, a black man, to see General Howe to tell him that the Americans are escaping. If you let them escape, they'll continue to fight this crazy war. She penned a note and gave it to her slave. So her slave begins to work through the British lines and he's detained by a Hessian commander. You've got to remember the Hessians were Germans who had been brought to America by the British, so they're allied with the British, but the problem is the Hessians speak German. And the Hessian commander could not read the note. And he didn't know who this black man was, so he detained him until the next day. Well, by the time the next day, the letter filters through command and gets to a British officer who can read English and says, They're escaping! They're gone. In fact, with sunup, They were sitting ducks because they still had many troops to cross the river. If the British had seen them, it's over. They'd have shot them like fish in a barrel. But something weird happened with the weather again. This incredibly thick fog, so thick that many of the soldiers said you could barely see the people in front of you, swept in and just sat on top of East River. The amazing thing is it was perfectly clear where the British were. There was no fog. All of the fog was sitting right over the area where Washington and the troops were escaping. By the time the fog lifted late that morning, all of the Americans were safely across East River and were on Manhattan Island out of the reach of the British. Now you're going to tell me that missing the letter 
that the slave tried to deliver because a Hessian intercepted him and couldn't read English? You're going to tell me that these storms, when Washington was so close to receiving a knockout blow, that we would not be Americans today. You're telling me all of that is an accident? Well, maybe one time, maybe even twice. But all of these examples, and I'm just scratching the surface. One more example, and then we're done. Now, they've escaped, but they can't fight. They're licked. So they began to retreat across New Jersey. Well, New Jersey is not a safe place. In fact, in Trenton, New Jersey, there is actually a force of Hessians numbering 1,400. Now, these Hessians, I told you they were mercenaries from Germany. The British brought 50,000 of them over, and they were fierce soldiers. They terrified the colonists, and rightfully so. So here's this garrison of 1,400 Hessian soldiers sitting there at Trenton, New Jersey. So in early December, this is what Washington wrote to his brother once again, telling him of the plight. If every nerve is not strained to recruit the new army with all possible expedition, I think the game is pretty nearly up. You can form no idea of the perplexity of my situation. No man, I believe, ever had a greater choice of difficulties and less means to extricate himself from them. Washington's letter to his brother just drips with despair. See, it's hard for us to vision because we see George Washington, father of our country. We see American victory. But you see, he's looking from the other side of that and it looks like American disaster. And there's those Hessians over there. What's he going to do about those Hessians? So he decides that on Christmas night, 1776, in the midst of a rain, sleet, and snowstorm, not only recorded by history, but the owner of this musket was named Isaac Cook. And I have a copy of his testimony that he wrote years later about what it was like that night as he marched with troops like those. He said, the rain turned to sleet, the sleet turned to snow back and forth. He said, we were freezing. In his testimony, he said, I remember General Washington riding up and telling a group of us, men, build some very small fires to warm your hands and thaw your guns. A third of the army had no shoes. They literally were leaving bloody footprints in the snow. But they're marching to Trenton. George Washington realizes that if he can launch a surprise attack, he stands a chance. And so they march all the way to the Delaware River. Now, most of us are familiar with this painting. This is kind of an idealized look at Washington crossing the Delaware. I don't exactly know what it looked like, but maybe not quite like that. It probably looked like that. And so they began to cross on these boats that they put together. And Isaac Cook carried this musket across the Delaware River and used it the next day in Trenton, New Jersey. It was in a shipment of the very first 15,000 that Benjamin Franklin purchased from the French. Delivered to the colonies three months before Lexington. Cook fought it, conquered. This may have been at Concord. And so they began to, to cross the river. Well, you see, the Hessians didn't believe the American soldiers were worth much. In fact, the commander of these Hessians was Colonel Johann Rall. And he had been told, 
Colonel Rawl, you better entrench your soldiers. I want you to listen to what he had said. Let them come. We want no trenches. We'll at them with the bayonet. He had no fear of the Americans. These guys were arrogant, and they didn't believe the Americans had a chance. So Washington is going to cross the Delaware in the night. But something strange happens. Because Colonel Rawl knows that the Americans are supposed to launch some kind of an attack, something happens at about 7 o'clock that he thinks is the attack. No one knows where these men came from. No one knows who they were. But at about 7 p.m., some 30 rebels began to fire away at the Hessians in Trenton. Well, immediately, to arms! And the Hessians run out there and they fight a little skirmish. And about as quickly as those 30 men appeared, they disappeared. Six uh, six Hessians had been wounded and that's about it. Well, Colonel Rawl thought that was the attack. And he said, some attack. What a pitiful army we're against. He told all of his soldiers, go back to your huts and celebrate Christmas as I will do the same. So all the Hessians went back and started doing a party hardy marty kind of deal as they're celebrating Christmas, drinking and playing cards and enjoying themselves. Little does he know that the real attack is just minutes from him. But you remember when I told you a while ago that these guys kept ignoring these notes that they keep getting passed? Well, there was a Tory, remember the Tories where the Americans that sided with the British farmer who saw him crossing the Delaware. So he came to General Rawls' headquarters, beating on the door, wanting to get in. Finally, one of the aides opened the door. He said, I need to speak to Colonel Rawl. The, the Americans are on the move. He said, oh, he doesn't have time to mess with you. It's Christmas. You're crazy. Go back home. No, no, no. You've got to understand. You've got to understand. They'll be here in just a little while. We saw that attack earlier. It was nothing. He said, no, 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 no. I'm watching them cross the river. They won't let him in. So he scribbles a note to General Rawl and says, please give him this. The aide says, okay. So he takes the note. He goes inside. He hands it to Colonel Rawl. And guess what Colonel Rawl does with the note? Puts it in his pocket and continues to celebrate Christmas. Sun up the next morning, December the 26th, 1776. All of Washington's army has crossed the Delaware. The Hessians are hung over. They've been celebrating Christmas. And the Americans attack, and it is a total rout of the greatest crack soldiers that the British had. So much so that not one American is killed in the fight. They lose a couple of guys, but they froze to death trying to get there. And in the fighting, Colonel Rawl is mortally wounded. Well, as he's lying there dying... They make him aware of the contents of the little note that they just found in his pocket. Remember that he had stuck in his pocket the night before? And here's what he said. If I had read this, I would not be here now. Now you're telling me that that is just a coincidence? That that's just one of those lucky breaks? When that battle is over that day, 900 Hessians surrender. 900 The Americans get their arms and their ammo, which they desperately need. As I said, only two Americans died, and they weren't even killed in the fight. They had frozen to death trying to get there. There were three Americans wounded. One of them was James Monroe, who would become the fifth president of the United States. (laughs) Isaac Cook carried that musket and fought. 
there. Well, just a little later, a couple of years, Washington is writing to General Thomas Nelson about what they've seen the last three years. Washington says, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. But it will be time enough for me to turn preacher when my present appointment ceases and therefore I shall add no more on the doctrine of providence. Even Washington knew that this was a mighty work of God. Now I want to close with this quote and then we'll wrap it up. This is Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz. He was the one in operation command of Midway, the Battle of Midway. It's a whole different story, a whole set of other miracles that I'll have to tell you some other time. But he was not known for his devout faith. But I want you to listen to what he said about Yorktown, which I didn't even get to cover today because time won't allow. But I want you to listen to what this man, who doesn't claim to be a devout Christian, has to say. Miracles do not often occur in military and naval operations, but Yorktown was a miracle. Now, if you don't know the story of Yorktown, the French are there, and these navies have come together, and God works an amazing miracle that I'll tell for another time, or you can read on your own. So what does all this mean? Well, it takes us back to here. The reason we do what we do, the reason I dress up as a black-robed preacher and travel around and bring that museum with me, that these are just two of the pieces out of many, is because we're trying to do what God was telling Moses to tell the Israelites to do. Don't forget. So I want to ask you, have you forgotten? Most of us don't even know these stories. Now, some of you do. I understand. Most of us don't know these stories primarily because they're not even being taught now. America was just founded by a bunch of old white supremacists that were slave owners and hated people. America is profane. Well, America is in a mess, I'll admit. We've never been perfect. But friends, one of our problems is we've forgotten our story. We've forgotten his story among us. But you know what's worse? Many of us have forgotten our stories. We've forgotten what God's done in us. You've forgotten the great things that God has done in you because you're like me. You're too busy asking God to do this today and that tomorrow. I need this and I want that. God, where are you? You see, when we remember what He's done in the past, it gives us confidence for the present. And for the prospects of tomorrow. But when we forget what he's done in the past. We forget that our God. Is mighty. To the pulling down of strongholds. God give us another great awakening. God wake up the pulpit. Wake up the church in America. But God start. With me.